is New Albion calling. New Albion calling. Good evening. My name is Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb, and you are listening to the ARC Light program. Coming up later, it's Slumber Time Stories once again. But first, it has been decided to persevere with the new feature that some are still persisting with calling Listeners Telephone In, although no listeners have actually done this yet. Now, for those of you who missed last week's show, it works like this. I have here on my desk a newfangled telephone apparatus, and you can give me a ring to let me know your views on the show, or just share what's on your mind. The method for achieving this is by dialing the specific telephone number associated with this receiver. But I'm not going to make the same mistake as last time and give out this number without allowing time for you to get a paper and a pencil to make a note of it. So please go ahead and get a piece of paper and a fountain pen or pencil for this purpose and I will allow you time to do this now. You know, Mabel, I have such a bad feeling about this. What's that? Mm, well, I'd, I'd keep that thought to yourself if I were you. <laughs> right, right, everyone. I hope you have your paper and pencil to hand now. Here is the number you need to dial. Metropolis 104. Metropolis 104. Right, now, having written that down, please take the duly ascribed paper to your telephone and ring us here at the ARC studios. Just, just go ahead, just go ahead and dial that number. It's really very straightforward. Uh, sorry, uh, what's that, Mabel? I need to remind them about making a trunk call. Oh, for heaven's sake. Is there any real point? Nobody's calling in anyway. Ah, uh, no, very well. If you are outside of the Metropolis region, uh, you, you cannot dial straight through, but must call the operator and ask them to make a trunk call. Oh, oh, oh my goodness. That gave me such a fright. I'm going to get used to this modern nonsense. Uh, oh, well, here we go with our first listener's telephone in of the day. Ahoy, hoy. Metropolis, one, oh, four, Theodore speaking. Theodore, is that you? Mumsy, is that you again? I'm speaking to you on the telephone. Uh, Mumsy, I, I am only too aware of this, as I am listening to you on the same. What, what are you up to? I haven't seen you since breakfast. Uh, Mumsy, I'm working. You know I present the light program during the day. Really? Since when? I've been doing it for nearly ten years. I don't believe you. Oh, it seems like only last week that you were dribbling all over your nanny. Uh, mother, please. Oh, mother is it now? Oh, well, honestly, you are so cruel to me. But what, what are you on about? I've always been lovely to you, Mumsy. Oh, if only you were a real man. Like that Luigi Engelbert. 
Oh, please don't mention that scoundrel Engelbert on my show again. Oh, you know how much it upsets me. Oh, talking of which, is there any point to this telephone call other than continued character assassination in front of my listeners? Well, well, I don't know. It's like you don't even want to talk to me. Your own mother. And there was me phoning up in my own time to see what you'd like for dinner. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not falling for that again. You're not really asking, are you? Oh, oh, don't be like that, dear. When I called last time, Trotsky was having one of his turns. Um, yes, well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that the cat was ill, but I'm still not getting my hopes up only to have them dashed cruelly on the rocks of meat-based product despair. Look, dear, I'm really asking this time. Let me know, and I'll pass the message on to Cookie. Oh, well, if you're sure, Mumsy. Uh, well, all right, then. Um, Let me see. Hmm. Perhaps, perhaps a, a lovely cottage pie. Oh, with all the greens. Oh, you know how much I like that. We're having faggots. Oh, fine. Well, apparently that's all we have time for. Goodbye, Mumsy. Goodbye, Theodore. Do try and come in quietly. Mabel, remind me to have words with you about this section of the show later. <sighs> anyway, moving swiftly on. It's time now for Slumber Time Stories. And this week, we finally bring to an end the great moon-based saga that seems to have been presented out of any sort of reasonable order. ARC presents Chapter 2 of In the Shadow of the Moon, Part 1, by Darren Callow. <laughs> Leaving Algy, chatty Chattimborough, who still had not uttered a word, in the observation post, with orders to telegraph through any changes in the demeanour of the invaders, Trout and long-stocking, hot-booted it back to the drill hall. On arrival, they were heartened to find that the corpse of poor old Captain Humpty Willingsmouth had been removed to one of Cookie's empty freezers. The news of the Martian reinvasion was met with sober silence, and then a degree of military efficiency as the troopers began to put their plans together. It was soon clear from initial discussions that, despite all his bluster, Sergeant Rogers was unlikely to be of much use as a war leader, and the soldiers were increasingly looking to Longstocking for direction. Uh, we need lookouts posting in all four observatories uh, to report on the hour every hour, uh, unless there is a major incursion of forces, began the corporal. Nods all round before troopers were dispatched to begin their watches. Uh, d double patrols from our feline friends also, in case of further holomatron appearances. This was directed towards the cats lurking amongst the legs of the troopers. It was met mainly with insouciance, uh, but eventually one of the cats, a particularly mischievous fellow named simply Fluffy McFluffball, left to spread the word or whatever it was that cats did in such circumstances. The attendants in the drill hall started to thin out, 
and Sergeant Rogers also slipped off, announcing that he needed to take a call of nature. But after he left, it was agreed that they were better off without him. Cookie! Trout! Flashman! Council of War! In the kitchen, I think! Ordered Longstocking, and with that they retired to the field kitchen to see if any kind of strategy could be <clears throat> cooked up. As they bustled into the small unit, and without waiting to be asked, Cookie opened a fresh bottle of hooch and poured them all a little over the usual two fingers. Every frog, muttered Cookie, without really making sense. The men took a welcome sip and then fell silent in consideration of their circumstances. Longstocking found his voice first. What direction did you see the enemy? West. Out beyond the hydrogen domes. What else is out that way? Replied Trout. The domes? Uh, some of the old storage nonsense only. Offered Private In Pan Flashman, a rather clever fellow of Asian descent, who knew the sector better than anyone. No, no, wait. That's the location of Ma Mu A. They must be aiming to repair it and bring more hordes from Mars. Are we so old that we've managed to miss the arrival of a whole Martian army? Lamented Longstocking, clearly feeling very disappointed that this had happened on his watch. Oh, we've scouted and patrolled flawlessly for 50 years, interjected Trout, looking to lift the mood which had sunk to a notch or two below utterly despondent. They, they can only just have arrived, hence why the holomatrons have only just started to reactivate. We have to strike them now, before they can establish a foothold. But what can we do? wailed Flashman. Fight back, confirmed Trout, with steely resolution. Get a message to Earth if we can. They are sure to build a moo ear on the Earth side, uh, we have to get a message into one of the outbound flights. Trout was almost beginning to convince himself. He just hoped the others were coming along with him. He swallowed another sharp mouthful of earthshine for a little lunar comfort. And fight we will, confirmed Longstocking, downing his tumbler and rising stiffly to his feet. I know how, too. Oh, but it won't be a walk in the park. It'll be strictly volunteers only. Break out the armory, get everyone on a war footing, and then assemble all those not on guard duty back in the drill hall. There is not a moment to lose. And with that, the council of war was ended, and the four old men rose stiffly to their duties. Half an hour later, now suitably armed and fitted out in a motley array of ancient uniforms and creaking spacesuits, the thirty-odd troopers and three dozen cats of the Homeland Defence Albion Expeditionary Force Extraterrestrial reassembled in the drill hall in clusters of nervous conversation. Sergeant Rogers had reappeared, having presumably taken a long, hard look at himself in the reflecting glassoscope. 
and seemed ready to resume some sort of executive control. However, his only contribution turned out to be to simply mutter, Carry on, Corporal! and then take a metaphorical, and indeed literal, step back from proceedings. Corporal Longstocking called the room to order, and all eyes, human and feline, turned to him in nervous anticipation. Now then, men, uh, oh, you know I'm not one for speeches, began Longstocking rather tentatively. No, uh, uh, so I'll, I'll get straight down to it. As you all know, the old enemy has returned, and they are already assembling their great war machines. There can be no doubt they intend to subdue the moon and reinvade the earth all over again. No other sound could be heard now as Longstocking continued to address the ensemble. However, the fiends have made a fundamental error by, presumably, believing our little force is of no consequence to them. How wrong they are! We will make them pay for their mistake and warn the Earth of their arrival into the bargain. Make no mistake, though, this will not be a bed of roses. It may not be possible for us to carry out my plan and also live on to see our hoped-for victory. That is why I'm asking for volunteers for these missions. Those whose hearts are made of stout oak and who can think only of the homeland and of glory. He looked around the room at the men, several of whom had their eyes tightly closed in consideration of his words. Brave comrades, time is of the essence. So I will ask all those men, and cats, naturally, willing to put themselves in harm's way, to take a step forward. Private Trout was one of those whose eyes were tightly shut. He had barely heard Longstocking's words since he had already been thinking over the agreed plan and realised that he had no choice. Soldier that he was, born only to no service. Without opening his eyes, he took what he believed was a firm and strong step forward. On opening his eyes, though, he was mildly alarmed that perhaps his old mind had merely imagined him volunteering. As his place amongst the men hadn't changed, he was still in line. It was only after a moment's consideration, noticing the closer positioning of the corporal, that he realised that every single man and animal had moved forward as one. With this realisation, he felt moisture welling in his eyes for the second time that day. The plan, such as it was, was brutal in its simplicity. Four men and four cats were chosen from the ranks by drawing lots. Each pairing of human and feline had a mission. Three of the couplings were to venture to the massive domes of hydrogen near to the Martians' new landings, and with the aid of dynamite, blow them to kingdom come, hopefully taking as many of the invaders with them as they could. The bonus of the plan was that it also denied the invaders a key resource, and, should the second part of the plan fail, a big enough explosion that might be visible to warn those on Earth. 
the fourth pair would attempt to get close enough to see if a new Mu ear light transmitter had been built, and if so, sneak the cat into the elevator with a message to rally support in the homeland. Flashman and Trout have been detailed to compose the all-important message, but Flashman's first attempt had been deemed too alarmist. Perhaps it was the five HELPS! Capital letters, exclamation mark. At the start, they'd got it off on the wrong metaphorical foot. Trout's effort seemed to hit the right note. The foe returned, stop. Ear, moo, be, viable, stop. Send help soonest, if not sooner, stop. Plus parts for moo, ear, stop. We'll hold out as long as possible, stop. God save the Queen, stop. The cat-man pairing selected for this task was Chatty Chattenborough and Mrs Tickle, a somewhat fluffy tabby cat generally thought of as a good egg, the third of her name to serve on the moon. Chattenborough collected the message with only a simple nod and secured it in a wax-sealed message canister on the side of Mrs Tickle's cat-sized spacesuit. Without another word from Chatty, or indeed any at all, they were gone about their task, with only a few dry-mouthed good lucks and godspeeds to send them on their way. Of the three other pairings, it turned out that Erasmus Trout and Princess Azalea would be the last to get underway. The cat would normally be a bundle of energy, but in her small spacesuit, with the dynamite and fuse attached securely with electrical tape, she suddenly seemed very quiet and demure. Trout hauled his complaining bones into his own armoured spacesuit, and picking up the stoic feline, he said his goodbyes and had a long hug with Cookie before he fastened his helmet on and began his slow stomp down the old corridors of the moon base for, possibly the last time. When they had first arrived on the moon, the Martians had evaded detection for a very long time and had managed to build a great complex of tunnels, bunkers and gas storage domes. Quite what the exact purpose of these great hordes of hydrogen, oxygen and nitrogen were, the humans never did discover. But they were grateful not just for a nearly inexhaustible supply of breathable gases, but now, it seemed, for some ready-made bombs. Most of the Martians' tunnels were too small for humans, and the cats were tasked with patrolling these. But fortunately, the Martians' ever-present tribots were a little larger than humans, and their service tunnels proved perfect for getting around the place. As he clomped along one of these over-engineered tunnels, Private Erasmus Trout had plenty of time to think, since the journey to the nearest and greatest of the giant hydrogen domes was a good four-mile trek. Princess Azalea was very quiet and still in his arms. He'd left her helmet off for now, in order to occasionally tickle her between the ears with a gauntleted hand. But there had been none of her usual purring in reply. Despite the imminent sacrifice that he and the cat were preparing to make, 
Trout could not help it but feel a slight sense of elation. He was finally getting to be a warrior again. After 49 years of non-martial fannying about. Was this not, after all, the way for old soldiers to go? After decades of service, in a blaze of glory for the homeland? He wondered if the cat understood this too. His instinct told him that she did. He went over the plan again in his head. It was simple enough that even his failing memory would have trouble forgetting it. His job was to deliver the princess to the hydrogen dome, taking care of any Martians that might stand in his way, and deliver her and her explosive cargo into the service airlock. He glanced down at the fuse on the dynamite strapped to her back. It was about a three-minute fuse. He might cut it down a bit. No sense in delaying the inevitable. He wasn't bothered about getting clear. He'd simply guard the door until the whole lot went up. He was ready to do it, although it did seem a waste in a way. It would be better if he could get far enough away to survive and fight on a little longer. But under no circumstances would he allow Princess Azalea to make the ultimate sacrifice if he wasn't prepared to make it too. His mind was so lost in thought that the entrance to the great hydrogen dome came along much sooner than he had expected. With a gulp, he put the princess down and checked his rifle before venturing over to a small observation port that had views of the moonscape outside. The scene that confronted him was almost overwhelming. Martians in armoured suits and tribots were going this way and that, tapping into the great fuel domes and building exotic contraptions. Craning his neck to look up, he could see the monumental arc of a giant war wheel being fueled, its chuntering engine already belching acrid steam into the vacuum. He turned away before the sight put him off his mission. He bent down to secure the small helmet onto his feline companion and reached for a blade on his utility belt to shorten the fuse. Goodbye, old girl, he whispered hoarsely. The cat did not make eye contact with him, so he busied himself checking the payload and the strap holding it to her back. As he prepared to shorten the wick, a thought came rushing into his head that meant it wasn't goodbye after all. Perhaps he could give the Moggy a chance. Quickly as he could, he put the knife down and reached for reinforced tape in a suit pannier. I've got an idea, old girl. This time the cat did look up, questioning what he was doing. Pulling off his gauntlets to make the job easier, he undid the strap holding the dynamite and instead taped the fuse across the gap with metal-backed tape. Now, now this, this is how it works, old girl. The, the fuse will burn till it gets to the gap. And then, when it passes the tape, the bomb will fall off. You'll have about a minute to get clear, so make it count. And with that, he replaced his gloves and ensured his helmet and oxygen tank were secure before checking the cats. Then, without further words, he lit the wick and lifted the cat up to the service airlock 
and popped her in. Dynamite, fizzing fuse and all. Shutting the airlock, he activated the sequence to release her the other side and then moved to the intercom. As succinctly as he could, he relayed what he had done in the hope that other cats might benefit from the same modification to their payload. Then he was off, stomping back towards the base with his rifle in his hands. As he walked the long three minutes before the fuse would reach the bomb, Trout found he was recalling long-forgotten thoughts from his past, including his one-score year on the planet Earth, before the moon became his home. Perhaps this is what they mean by your life flashing in front of your eyes, he mused. He recalled his morning tipple with Cookie, and wondered if he'd live long enough to enjoy another glass with his dear friend. He thought of the other friends and comrades in his troop, and how much they all meant to him. He chuckled at the thought of them all volunteering together and thinking that he'd just imagined it. It occurred to him, with a feeling that could simply be thought of as happiness, that he was entirely comfortable with his lot as a lifer, career soldier for the duration, warrior for all seasons. Who'd have thought? He laughed out loud, just to hear his voice. At that exact moment, there was a tremendous flash of blinding light, and a second later, a thundering shockwave knocked him clean off his feet and sent him crashing down and along the corridor. Finally, a great roar of biblical proportions engulfed him, and flames seemed to rush past him like great dragon's tongues. Good girl, he thought. Good work, princess. And with that, he lost consciousness. When Private Erasmus Trout came round some time later, he could only imagine he was in hell. All he could see was thick black smoke and the odd lick of flame. He was in great pain and his ears were ringing. Gradually, the view cleared enough to see that he was lying face up in a service corridor. His breath, misting up the visor of his spacesuit, obscured what little view he had. He gave out a chuckle. I'm, I'm bloody alive, you Martian bastards. There is fight in this old soldier yet. He laughed again, louder this time, and was just beginning to contemplate seeing if he could haul his old frame to its feet when something landed hard on his chest. He gasped desperately and tried to grope around for his rifle, but he couldn't feel it anywhere. Get, get off me, you devil, he yelled. But before he could take any further action, a pair of wide, bloodshot, cat eyes stared down at him from inside a charred and blackened helmet and gave a plaintive, almost silent meow. This time Trout found that he could not hold back his tears. 
He cried and cried and laughed and cried until the tears stung his eyes. Well, that was an emotional ending. Perhaps it's best Mumsy doesn't listen to the show after all. And that really is the end for now, as I'm led to understand that that concludes all of the stories from Volume 1 of Tales of New Albion, whatever that is. Fear not, though, dear listener, as I've been further assured that some additional programmes are being mooted. Although, I shudder to think what further embarrassments I should be subjected to during the course of these. However, for now, this is Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb signing off. Good night, New Orleans. I wish you dreams of a bright future. All characters and stories are copyright too and performed by Darren Callan. All music by Charlotte Savigar. Tales of New Albion is available to buy from Amazon online stores or via Bandcamp, where the album is also available. For more information, go to www.talesofnewalbion.com or search for Tales of New Albion on Facebook.